0: I'm Danny Rivero, and welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. After two years of cancellations and restrictions due to COVID, Fantasy Fest was back in full swing. Tutus, glitter, body paint, and all. But all of the hype from locals and tourists about the festival being back isn't just about the parade floats and crazy costumes. The economic impact of Fantasy Fest is huge. It's also a fundraising event for local nonprofits, helping residents with housing and access to healthcare. In October, I spoke to WLRN's Florida Keys reporter Gwen Filosa and Fantasy Fest director Nadine Grossman Orr about the event and its impact. Nadine, let's start with you. Um, what are you most excited about? Uh, uh, you know, having the festival fully return after the past few years of of absence. Gosh, I
1: think I'm I'm most excited. Every year, about the creativity, um, the local community really brings it. They em- have embraced the theme this year, and the floats and the costumes have been fantastic. Um, yeah, just finished the parade script for our Bud Light Fantasy Fest parade that goes down the street tomorrow evening, and the creativity is amazingly impressive. Um, I just I get excited though. There's a, a high energy in town everywhere. The events have been so well attended. Headdress ball was last night, and it was. Fantastic. And uh, I'm excited for the Masquerade March tonight. It's just a couple of hours away. It's uh, just getting all the my, all my ducks in a row. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and Gwen, the, the festival has been go- ongoing for a week now. Tell us a little bit about what you've seen, you know, the crazy costumes and the people wearing them. Keep in mind, you know, keep it PG. <laughs> <laughs> of course.
2: Uh, it, this is an enormous event that is put on i mean there's so much going on and the locals though have they always bring it they really brought it this year at the zombie bike ride which is what it sounds like uh people just had amazing um creativity we had someone in an electric chair who was a <laughs> friend of mine who i didn't even recognize it was so good and um the the guys who dress up as the amish come every you had to be there uh <laughs> tutu tuesday was a huge party hundreds of people were at this complex of bars. And, um, I, a woman, uh, an artist here wore a, a shift dress made entirely of tutus. Uh, she always has to come in and make us feel lame. And, uh, she looked great. She looked great. <laughs> I will say that the, the Velma's and the shining twins, that, that's played out down here. So it's gotta yeah. stop.
0: <laughs> and Nadine, this year's theme for a fantasy fest is cult classics and cartoon chaos. Uh, How did did you land on that theme? What's the the backstory there?
1: You know, it's a lot of fun. I mean, something that this festival has been around for 43 years, and I think a big part of that, and the festival itself having a cult following, is because we freshen it up every year with this theme. We put out a call uh, to our fans, everyone on our social media and our e-news, and our our community and we ask them to submit theme ideas and then our board of directors uh fantasy fest is owned by a nonprofit board of directors we all get together and review all those themes and if we select uh your theme that's been submitted you actually win a place on our judges stand so we call out to the community for those ideas and then um, the board has to make the decision based on costuming we always choose a theme That's going to lend itself to a lot of um, a really broad spectrum of ideas and, you know, creative costuming. And so that's that's how we got there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Nice. And Gwen, COVID-19 had a huge impact on tourism and the hospitality industry across the whole state. Um, What you know, what are you hearing from businesses about the return of Fantasy Fest right now um, after many years of not having it?
2: Yeah, well they had an abbreviated version last year in 2021 um key west like a lot of florida really bounced back um, it had, had like a record year in certain revenues and um because other places were closed i mean right couldn't really go anywhere else but um but uh you know this brings tens of thousands of people to town i will say i mean uh the Hotels have some spare rooms and that that hasn't happened during a lot of fantasy fests. They're doing good, but they're doing okay. But there are some uh, spare rooms around town and so it's not a sellout crowd, but uh, it's still kind of early, but uh, people are, you know,
1: happy.
0: Nadine, do you have something
1: there? uh, I was going to say, it's pretty close. When I was, I've been calling around, I know there are some guest houses and um, some vacation rentals still available, but um, my bigger hotel groups, we're forecasting and we're telling me that starting tonight actually uh or starting last night thursday night they were very solidly you know over 90 percent and 100 percent this weekend so
2: yeah and that makes sense because it's the end that's the big show big showcase over the weekend but i mean throughout the week there yeah there's some spare and uh people people are happy people always do well on deval um uh you know there's um uh, people are excited. I don't know. The crowd seemed a little thin last night on Duval, but again, Friday and Saturday, those are the big
0: days where people Friday, make it. Friday night. Um, yes. Nadine, the, the festival also raises funds for many people in the community who are in need of help. Um, the coronation of the king and queen, for example, raises money for the A.H. Monroe, an organization providing housing and care for people living with HIV. And you actually won the Queen's Crown in two thousand three, meaning that you raised the most the most cash for that cause. Um, how important is this, you know, fundraising part of the festival for you, and how you you look at it?
1: Gosh, I mean, it's it's enormous. the 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 history of the King and Queen campaign for H. Monroe they've raised over five million dollars um, in just over thirty years um, through this annual King and Queen campaign. And um, there are many other organizations that we support throughout the festival, our, our Mark Association, the Monroe Count, um, County Remarkable Citizens. Uh, we collect Fantasy Fest beads and recycle them, and they resell them uh, throughout the year. Uh, we've got um, breast cancer and, of course, the Florida Keys F, uh, SPCA. We raise funds for them, uh, Womankind, so many local nonprofits. Participate and host really clever, creative events annually, and you know this is part of their annual budget. So um, yeah, it's not only a, a huge impact to all of the worker bees, all of our frontline bartenders, servers, hospitality industry folks, um, but these nonprofits really depend on the revenues that they can generate during Fantasy Fest as well.
0: And uh, I want to ask a maybe a personal question for both of you, but um, what are you what are you all wearing? Nadine let's start with you I feel like you might be better situated
1: Uh, uh, You know this evening I am just gonna go as sort of myself Although I've got a very colorful wig and ensemble I am uh, the director of chaos control this evening I've got a lot of uh, (laughs) a lot of things to get underway tonight So my costume is pretty tame but very sparkly and purple and glittery
0: (laughs) And Gwen same question don't hate me no, no. Nadine's going
2: as the most exhausted person ever. She's done great this year. I, um, I am, I have a Clark Kent outfit cause I always wait till the last minute and it does fit the theme, even though it's super lame.
0: <laughs> and this, this one is for both of you. Um, but just looking back, you know, obviously there's such a long history with fantasy fest. Um, is there a favorite memory that, that you have Nadine? I'll start with you.
1: Oh, my gosh. Uh, You know, I think that I took on this festival as the director in 2017. The previous director had done it for 25 years. My first year um, is so memorable to me. We we put on Fantasy Fest right after a major hurricane. Um, But um, I loved the theme time travel unravels and the artist Lady Outrageous who did the poster. It's actually, you know, um, just it's a it's a wonderful memory and every time I need to channel some good Fantasy Fest energy, I have got her her art and my poster here in my office and I love it.
0: That was WLRN's Florida Keys reporter Gwen Felosa and Fantasy Fest director Nadine Grossman-Or talking about Fantasy Fest and its impact. Switching gears, we're going to talk about the recent headlines and big news this year out of Haiti. South Florida is home to many different diasporas and the Haitian community here has now officially been here for 50 years. It was 50 years ago on December 12, what's widely believed to be the first boat full of Haitian refugees to come to Florida by water landed in Pompano Beach. To mark the occasion, the community held an event at the Little Haiti Cultural Center in Miami. I went to meet people there and report on how the community is commemorating this significant milestone in the country's history. There was laughter, there were tears, a poetry reading, and music. Haitians gathered Monday night to honor a history filled with struggle, with an unknown number of Haitians who died trying to reach Florida, and a history of discrimination Haitian refugees faced when they got here, but also to celebrate a story of remarkable success best-selling Haitian-American author Edwidge Danticat was there.
1: The Haitian community has
2: contributed so much to the South Florida community. I'm mean, I'm I've been here 20 years now and even in that time I've seen the the growth in terms of the contributions through art, culture, economics.
0: Just last week, the U.S. Senate confirmed a Haitian immigrant as a top federal prosecutor for South Florida, the first Haitian American to fill that post. The event marked the beginning of what organizers say will be a full year of programming to showcase Haitian American history and culture in Florida. I'm Danny Rivero in Miami. Earlier this year, Haiti's de facto Prime Minister Ariel Henry announced a cut to subsidies for fuel. After weeks of violent protests, a powerful confederation of gangs, known as G9, blocked access to a key fuel terminal, causing widespread shortages in water and other services. In October, my South Florida Roundup co-host, Wilkin Brutus, spoke with Congresswoman Sheila Scherferlis McCormick about why so many in the Haitian diaspora were urging President Biden to withdraw support for the prime minister and impose sanctions on those financing the gangs in Haiti. Scherferlis McCormick serves part of Palm Beach County in Broward in the U.S. Congress, and she was the first Haitian American Democrat to be elected to Congress.
3: Right now, since he's been prime minister, the governmental structure of Haiti has dissolved. We don't have anybody in parliament. We don't have senators. Um, There's just no governmental structure and the gangs have taken over. But there's something that I wanted to draw your attention to. The issue with the gangs has been something that's been growing for probably five years, even when Jovenel was alive. What we saw going on once the de facto prime minister um, came into power is that they became even stronger and they became stronger without any kind of accountability. And we saw the influx of more guns and the influx of more money to them. And if you look at the gang members, some of them have no shoes. And so it begs the question, where are you getting the money from? Where are you getting the gang, the um, the ammunition and all the, the military style weapons? And that's where I believe the US has to step in because we know a lot of the money is coming from um, rich families and rich people who have houses in the US, who live part-time in the US and go back. Um, a lot of the ammunition and the guns that are going in to Haiti are coming from the United States. And so we have to do our part to give Haiti a chance by blocking and stopping them financially. Um, I'm also requesting that we put a terrorist designation on these gang members. Everyone who's part of G9, which I'm sure you're aware that G9 is a combination of gangs that have come together who are actually led by um, barbecue. Um, We've been hearing that G9 now has people who are, are infiltrating the police force. So if we understand what's actually going on right now in the corruption, it's not enough just to stop their financial sources. It's not enough just to stop the, the money, um, the ammunition that's coming in and the guns. We have to take further steps to make sure that they will not be able to get funding even after we quell this situation later on so they won't be able to terrorize the people again. And that's where the terrorist designation for the gang members is imperative.
4: The United Nations Secretary General backed Ariel Henry's formal request for foreign intervention to quell the protests. But many important Haitian individuals and organizations in South Florida are against this, saying at a recent press conference that it could empower the prime minister even further. What are your thoughts on that sentiment against foreign intervention in Haiti?
3: You know, I think that before we start talking about what we can accept and we can't accept, we have to really wait for what the State Department's assessment comes back. Right. And the reason why I say that is because um, we haven't really had a clear understanding of what's going on. And I think that military intervention into Haiti will be something that is going to be a tough sell for everyone. Right. Even for myself. Um, But if that is where we have to be, as of right now, I don't think we should have military intervention. However, if we have to have military intervention, we have to make sure that we're asking for certain safeguards. For example, how long will this mission be? What is the precise mission? What are you going to be doing there? So we need to flesh it out of what it looks like. It can't just be, let's have military intervention, and they're there forever and an elections able to happen and people still don't feel comfortable voting and we get someone in Haiti who's even worse and that's a concern right governance is always a concern um so that's where we've been focusing as members of Congress, where we've been focusing um, as a Congressional Black Caucus is what are our options and how do we safeguard and meet the needs of the Haitian diaspora and the Haitian people, which is to be protected and not exploited. That, I think that's the real um, essence of everybody's heart of not exploiting the people anymore and protecting them.
4: Haiti's long history of foreign intervention from U.S.'s 19-year occupation to the controversial United Nations peacekeeping mission, many Haitians and Haitian activists say it hasn't brought the kind of long-term policy changes that could sustain a country. There is a large group of Miami-based Haitian leaders, from economists to labor unions known as the Montana Accord. They're asking President Biden to meet with them so that they can discuss how Haitians themselves could form a transitional government, do you support the
3: Montana Accord? Oh, you have all the hard questions, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So as the only Haitian American in Congress um, and the first democratic elected Haitian American in Congress, I'm very slow to endorse or support any kind of government in Haiti, because I think part of the issue that we have been facing has been the U.S. involvement in who actually governs Haiti. And I think that Montana Group has shown that they have um, a, a consensus. They have been the most organized. And if they can figure out how to make it constitutional for them to facilitate the transition, then I wouldn't oppose it. Um, but there's been many, of course, that have been presented. And I think at the end of it, we, we're looking at um, governance now, but I think that it's a disservice for us to look at governance first without looking at security. And I think once we're able to secure Haiti, where you don't have gangs in Haiti who are controlling when you come out in the day, if you could come out today, like it's crazy how the gangs are running the country where they give them hours. There's certain hours where the gangs will allow your street to come out. Um, So that's what really limits democracy when you can't even go out to vote or if you know if you're going to vote. So before we try and transition to this governmental group who I don't know how they're really going to even suppress the gangs. Right. We can't go there first. Security is primary. And then I think we'll start seeing more entities be able to articulate how they're going to go through a constitutional way of transition. And I think that's the only thing that the Montana group hasn't been able to overcome is how can they be the transition government um, constitutionally.
4: The U.S. government recently announced that it's pulling visas belonging to Haitian government officials suspected of being involved with criminal organizations. But what about humanitarian assistance? Are there any discussions to address ongoing food shortages?
3: Yes, there's a hundred percent that has been um, one of the primary leading um, concerns is how can we help the hospitals who don't have access to fuel? How can we start subsidizing the food shortages, um, the water shortages? Uh, How can we help Uh, Haiti from the humanitarian perspective before we find just like a humanitarian disaster. So that has been the conversation of making sure we're providing Southern comfort is supposed to be going down to Haiti. Um, But once again, even when we have that conversation, the gangs are blocking off the roads. The gangs will not let you go through unless you negotiate and pay them. So that's the kind of crazy system that we're looking at, that even if we bring in all the help to help Haiti, you're now negotiating with the gangs before the prime minister? So that's why security keeps on popping up as um, being the most urgent.
0: That was U.S. Congresswoman Sheila Sherfalis McCormick speaking with WLRN's Wilkin Brutus. Still to come, we look back at the end of the sentencing trial for the Parkland shooter in the current division of Florida's Latino Democrats. I'm Danny Rivero welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN it's been more than four years since the mass shooting that left 17 dead and 17 injured at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland in October the jury reached a verdict of life in prison without parole for Nicholas Cruz Florida law requires a unanimous jury verdict before a death sentence may be imposed and three of the 12 jurors voted to spare his life WLRN's Gerard Albert III followed the trial from start to finish, and I spoke with him about the trial as it came to a close. What do we know about the deliberations, how the decision-making process played out that did not opt to go a route that could bring the death penalty.
5: All we really know is that one or more jurors voted for life because they said that mitigating circumstances, which are things that the defense presented, things like the shooter had mental illness and his mother abused drugs and alcohol, that those things outweighed the aggravating factors that the prosecution proved, which were things like that the shooting was heinous, atrocious and cruel, and that it was cold, calculated, and premeditated. And although those things were proven beyond a reasonable doubt to the jurors, the mitigating factors outweighed those for at least one juror.
0: Right. So, so just to to repeat it back and to help the audience understand a little bit. So, essentially, at least one juror felt that all these other factors of the early childhood of of, of the shooter, and you know, things that happened when his mother was pregnant, that those things. Might have impacted things so much where putting him to death would not be, you know, an option that that juror wanted to go in.
5: Right. We know that mental health was a, a, at the center of this jury's decision. And, you know, the the appeals process for death penalty
0: cases has been known to drag on for years and years and decades in some cases. And, you know, in this case, opting not to go the death penalty route could actually bring closure to families much quicker in the sense that they won't have to come back into to court, you know, on, on an open-ended basis. Is there any um, recognition of that by families or are they just angry? I mean, a lot of them wanted the death penalty in this case.
5: You know, I, I think when they spoke to press yesterday, a lot of them were angry and that's understandable. And it, it's, you know, we've yet to see how they're going to react in the years to come. But, but what's for sure is that the ones that came out and advocated for school safety and advocated for gun control laws afterwards, they're only going to continue that work after this ruling. Um, They have no intention of stopping or slowing down that mission. And one of the jurors has alleged
0: that she was threatened by another juror when they were deliberating on the case, um, which is a pretty remarkable thing, just the allegation itself. what could that allegation mean for where this entire process stands?
5: Well, there's a hearing about that going on actually in a couple minutes. And it's unlikely that it will change anything. Really, at this point, uh, Nicola, uh, the shooter is going to get a life sentence from the judge. And um, that'll happen in November uh, when she officially sentences him.
0: Yeah. Can we can we talk about because Because... Um, what happened this week was the verdict was read, but it's not quite the sentencing. So, so what's next in this process?
5: Sure. The jury recommends a sentence. So in, in, when they recommend a life sentence, there's no appeal. But if they were to recommend death, there could have been an appeal and would have been from the defense. But now the victims, um, meaning those who um, were shot and families of the victims who were killed, get a chance to speak at the sentencing hearing, which will be in November. It won't change anything but um, their, their voices will be heard.
0: And is, is there any sense of the long view on this when it comes to the death penalty in Florida, how such a high-profile case like this, a lot of people felt that if there was any case where the death penalty would be, would be warranted and, and given by a jury, it would be this case, and it didn't happen, and now we have, you know, Governor DeSantis criticizing the jury, Charlie Crist, who's running you know, against him as governor, criticizing it um, is, is, I mean, the Florida law would have to change. Is there any
5: sense that that could happen? Not yet. I mean, it, it has only been a day, but you have to remember that every case, all the, the, the jury, all they have to go on is the facts of that case. They can't consider the, the bigger picture things. They have to focus on that case. So it really is a case by case thing for the death penalty and I, I don't know if people will rally behind this ruling now and try and change that legislation, or if lawyers will now be more hesitant to try for the death penalty. But for the jurors, all they could consider was the facts of this case, and they really couldn't look at the broader implications of
0: it. That was my conversation with WLRN's Gerard Albert III about the end of the Parkland shooter's trial. He was formally sentenced by Judge Shurer in November. For Florida Democrats, one of the most troubling things about their big midterm election losses last month was a continued exodus of Latino voters to Republicans. WLRN's Tim Padgett tells us that has sharply divided the state's Latino Democrats,
6: especially here in South Florida. Many Democrats like being labeled progressive. But in Florida, progressive in Spanish is progresista. To the ears of many Cubans, Venezuelans, or Colombians here, people whose families often fled leftist dictatorships or guerrillas in Latin America, progresista can mean socialist or communist.
3: The Democratic Party needs to understand in Florida, calling themselves progresista shows the lack of cultural sensitivity Evelyn
6: Perez-Verdia heads the communications consulting firm We Are Mas in Fort Lauderdale. She says her family was harassed by Marxist guerrillas in Colombia when she was a girl. Like many moderate Florida Democrats, she fears the party's more liberal wing has gained an outsized voice here that alienates Latinos. A 2020 poll showed 70 percent of Florida Latinos would not vote for anyone or any party associated with the word socialist. And yet, Perez Verdia points out, many Democratic activists in the state call themselves Democratic Socialists.
3: We're creating a perception that we don't want. If you don't want to be called a socialist, don't use symbols and words that mean exactly that. I don't think that's the only reason Miami-Dade went red, but it's a big piece of it.
6: Miami-Dade County went red in the midterm elections largely because its majority Latino vote went red. Republicans have been successful at convincing Latinos here, falsely, that Democrats are socialistas like those back in Latin America. But progressive Democrats argue semantics is not the problem. They say it's about explaining policy. Carolina Ampudia is an Ecuadorian-American physician in Plantation. Until recently, she headed Florida's Democratic Progressive Caucus, and she proudly calls herself a Democratic Socialist.
7: The policies that Democratic Socialists defend align with Democrat values.
6: Amputia says Democrats are losing Latinos in Florida because they've let Republicans define them as bad socialism, like Venezuela, instead of good socialism, like affordable health care.
7: So what we need to do is to educate the people. If you talk to Latinos about what their needs are and the solutions for those needs, we're pretty much in alignment with them.
6: Democrats outside Florida have persuaded most Latinos in that regard. But moderate Democrats insist the party's outreach to Florida Latinos is also hurt by progressives with national profiles like New York Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. They often give the impression they support regimes like Cuba's. Cecilia Tavera is a realtor in Coconut Grove and a longtime Democratic activist. She says her family's farm was forcefully confiscated by a left-wing dictatorship in Peru in the 1970s. She fears the party's more liberal wing has tainted the word progressive, which is why
0: I do not describe myself as a progressive Democrat, even though I have progressive ideas.
7: That's the problem. So we need to show the Latino voters in South Florida that we're moderate.
6: Progressives say the party needs to show instead that it's present in Florida's Latino community. These days, Republicans engage Florida Latinos hard, year-round, especially in the media and in the neighborhoods. It's more of a problem
8: of infrastructure and of execution a story of massive organizational
7: failure.
6: Tomas Kennedy of Miami is a member of the Democratic National Committee. He worked for leftist presidential candidate Bernie Sanders in 2020. Just before this year's midterms, he led a call for Florida Democratic Chairman Manny Diaz, a moderate, to resign. Kennedy's family lived under a right-wing dictatorship in Argentina. He says if Democrats are angry that Republicans call them socialistas, they should call out former President Donald Trump for cozying up to North Korea's communist dictator.
9: Democrats need to stop playing patty cakes with the Latino voters' community.
6: A decade ago, Republicans were the ones losing Florida Latinos. But Cuban-American Fernan Amandi, who heads the Democratic polling firm Ben Dixon and Amandi International in Miami, says Democrats just
1: got complacent. Democratic support amongst Hispanic voters in Florida has consistently
10: eroded ever since.
6: Analysts like Amandi don't blame just progressive or just moderate Democrats. They blame both. I'm Tim Padgett in Miami.
0: Pickleball is the fastest growing sport in America. That's according to the Sports and Fitness Industry Association. And great weather and an abundance of courts make Florida a popular place to play. Yvonne Zumtobel talked to some pickleball players in Palm Beach County about what drew them to the game and why they love it. When COVID-19 closed John Fetterman's local
11: gym, the Boca Raton resident started playing pickleball.
8: So we painted streets, and then we just played in the street for a while, and then we got better and we played here.
11: Here is at the El Rio Park in Boca Raton. It's a sunny, sweltering September afternoon, and more than 25 people are here. Fetterman tells me it's a good time to get on one of the four courts here. At 5.30, it starts to get pretty crowded. He's a teacher at Coconut Creek High School in Broward County, and he comes pretty much every day after school.
8: The games are fairly quick, and anyone can play. There are teenagers out here, and there are 80-year-olds that all can kick our butts.
3: A A rack that
11: holds paddles hangs from a chain-link fence. David Schaefer slips his paddle into a slot. It lets other players know he's up next.
9: We started playing in a church parking lot.
11: He's a pastor at Victory Church in Boca Raton.
9: We set up our courts and then we just started playing and we fell in love with it and here we are two years later.
11: He also started playing during the pandemic. Now he's hooked and plays here four to five days a week. I'm
9: in my 50s so it just brought me back to kind of that childhood pickup game, connecting. Obviously the calorie burn is ridiculous.
11: Pickleball, a fusion of badminton, tennis and ping pong, has become popular, especially with Floridians. On the state's west coast, the Naples Pickleball Center, with 60 courts, calls itself the pickleball capital of the world. According to the Sports and Fitness Industry Association, there were 3.5 million pickleball players in 2019. Last year, the number of pickleball players was up to 4.8 million. That's almost a 40% increase. So why this sudden pickleball mania? The game's been around since 1965 the pandemic lockdowns are only one reason.
9: Three and a half years ago, this club didn't even know what pickleball was.
11: That's Scott Golden. He goes by Golden Boy Pickleball on Facebook and Instagram. He's also the pickleball pro at the Woodfield Country Club in Boca Raton.
9: A lot of people thought, oh, this was probably invented a few years ago, when in fact it was invented 57 years ago, but it wasn't popular until social media kind of picked it up.
11: Pick a ball is played on a court, about a quarter of the size of a tennis court. You use a paddle, not a racket, to hit a plastic wiffle-type ball. The game with its unusual scoring and non-volley zone called the kitchen is easy to learn and affordable. Golden says it brings different people together. Children play with their grandparents, men play with women.
9: I have talked to people who have literally said, this has saved my marriage. This has given us something to look forward to together that we can go out and play with our kids. Or it's connected a father and a son or a mother and a daughter who who otherwise wouldn't have anything really in common. Uh, It's bridged that gap between old and young.
11: Pickleball is played on a smaller court with a shorter net than tennis. So the game is intimate and doesn't require much mobility. Unlike tennis, only the team that's serving the ball can score points. For example, after winning a rally. Golden says most of his clients in Boca Raton are 50-plus. Some are retired, some are empty nesters, so they have extra time on their hands. And, he says, it's not just the weather, but the number of places to play. Erin Wright is with the Greater Boca Raton Beach and Park District. Two years ago, she and her colleagues converted some tennis courts into pickleball courts at Patch Reef Park.
10: The six pickleball courts that we transitioned from tennis to pickleball get more play on than the remaining tennis courts that are currently there.
11: Next year, the park will have 18 pickleball courts. There are now 10,000 facilities nationwide registered with USA Pickleball, with around three new venues opening every day. According to places2play.org, to there are almost 80 places to play pickleball from Jupiter to Homestead. That's not including gyms or private country clubs. And Florida ranks as one of the top five states with the most places to play.
4: If high level pickleball is
0: what you've come to watch. National tournaments like this
11: one in California last August have helped pickleball gain traction. That's what Woodfield pro Scott Golden tells me. He's been playing since 2016.
9: There was a professional scene, but not like there is now. Pros literally worked full-time jobs, and then would travel on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and they would compete. In August,
11: CBS televised a pickleball tournament for the first time.
9: The tours are what really helped catapult the sport to what it is today from a professional standpoint.
11: Major League Pickleball, a professional pickleball league, debuted in 2021. It's attracted high-profile owners like LeBron James and Tom Brady. Two MLP teams have two top-ranked players from Boynton Beach, brother-sister duo, Georgia and J.W. Johnson. And they practice here at Patch Park in Boca Raton.
12: I like the community of pickleball. I like how um, there's camaraderie. I also like the fast-paced game of it.
11: That's Georgia Johnson. She's ranked number one in women's singles in the APP, the Association of Pickleball Professionals. She's 16 and a sophomore in high school, enrolled in an online school program. In 2018, the Johnson family moved to Florida for JW's tennis career. During the pandemic, they started playing pickleball more seriously as a family. Then they started signing up for tournaments when Georgia and JW started playing doubles together, they never looked back.
12: Most of my friends are on tour. I'm not a big fan of like going to school every day and, and never getting to travel and the routine of it all.
11: JW Johnson is 19 and he's ranked number one in men's singles in the APP. He graduated from high school and is taking a gap year before going to college.
10: My people are much more Uh, friendly and social for the most part. Um, Whereas tennis, kinda everyone is just about themselves.
11: Georgia is super relaxed and tells me she loves pickleball. There's no stress like tennis.
12: I got burned out of tennis. My dad made me play and I hated it. I started getting more into pickleball with my friends and then later joined my family who played at a higher level. And uh, now we just have fun and travel together. And we get to experience so many different places. We've grown closer, I feel, as a family.
11: I'm Ivanzum Tobol in Boca Raton.
0: Still to come, members of Miami-Dade Fire Rescue use music to help them with the stress of their job. Also, teacher enrollment has been down because of the pandemic. How does the new dean of Miami-Dade College's School of Education hope to boost enrollment? Danny Rivero, welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. To play in the band Fire Brigade, you don't need a background in rock music. The one requirement is to work for the Miami-Dade Fire Rescue. The Fire Brigade is a rock and roll band consisting predominantly of Miami-Dade County's firefighters. Their experiences include working in the rubble and Surfside after the Champlain Tower South collapsed last year. WLRN's Veronica Saragovia spoke to the band's six members in September about their love of music, and how it helps them with the stress of their job.
8: Uh, what song are we doing first, so I can know which guitar to pull out? Danger Zone? Are we practicing? What? 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 Oh. Uh, no, we're not starting at, we're not, We'll do that. The, yeah. So, which one then? The bright, side. The bright Side. So, so bright side. I'm Eddie Alarcon. I'm, I guess, the founding member of the band. So, I've been with the department for 26 years, and the band started about, yeah, about 18 years ago. Where I met Ryan at uh, Station 16 at Homestead, uh, he was a guitar player, and right. I, we were just messing around. I said, "Man, we should
9: start a band." My name is Ryan Townsend. I've been with the department for 20 years. Over the night, yeah, I played guitar. And when Eddie saw me, he says, "Oh, let's jam. We jammed. And that's how it started. We started playing,
8: uh, you know, our instruments at the station a little bit, you know, in between calls. <laughs> one of our district chiefs Jason Richard he heard us play he was at the station and he said man I'll give you your first gig I'm gonna book you for my dad's retirement party and that was our very first gig back then we weren't known as fire brigade though the original name was fat Eddie in the B shift destroyers and guess guess who fat Eddie is this guy right here so this is basically the band that has been together the longest and the best the version of the band, as far as I'm concerned. And we're all, you know, not just bandmates, we're mates at work, but we're the best of friends as well. Where's my other guitar? Hand me that guitar right there, buddy.
9: It's always been a requirement to be part of the fire department. That's just one of our things. Not only can we be heroes in real life, but we can also, you know, be rock stars on the weekend. So it's, it's a lot of fun. I don't think any of us intend on stopping anytime soon I think this is just like a, you know we're, we're just gonna go as far as we can go and again this is not something that we do for anything other than the love for it you know and uh, we've had amazing experiences some of these guys actually got to play with uh, Pitbull let's make history report live from the Lamb Grammys 2020 we want to represent all the first responders in the world and let's do it Come on! I, said, I, I I believe! I thought it was awesome that Pitbull took the time to do that and include normal people like us and that was awesome. It's just an amazing, you know, satisfaction to be able to
8: bring joy. We said, you know, you make everybody happy and dancing and all that stuff, it's a great feeling. You guys do it. Do it. It's on you. you guys ready? Right?
0: My name is uh, Miguel Peralta and newly promoted battalion chief so yeah well even though Eddie may be the founder of the band I'm the chief of the band so they all have to do as I say. Just living the dream you know both my childhood dreams really being a firefighter and being a drummer in a band I mean it doesn't get any better. Been on a little over 17 years I got hired in 2005 along with Adrian. My name is
9: Adrian Ballard. Uh, I'm the lead singer of Fire Brigade. I actually am uh, a driver engineer for Ladder 66 on B-Shift, but right now I'm on a special assignment. I'm actually in training. I'm an instructor for Miami-Dade Fire Brigade right now. I was working overtime one time. met Al Acon.
0: I
5: told him, hey, I, I sing. he you sing me something? I sang it, and he's like,
9: come Monday, record some stuff. The guys heard it. Said, hey, will take him as lead singer. We're like brothers, you know, we're going to fight, we're going to have our disputes and then we're going to say, what we're going to eat later or something like that and so we always have a good time, but to me what's uh, over the lifetime is just seeing the the growth of as a musician, how we've got better. My name is Robert Keller I've been on the department for uh,
5: almost six years now Uh, I'm a lieutenant, I just promoted. I got a degree in classical piano before I was on the fire department. Any way you can express yourself with music I think is beneficial stress-wise. Definitely with uh, more like uh, rock type music you can kind of get a little more out. (laughs) A little more
4: out of it.
0: Rob. He, I was his instructor doing the uh, Recruit Academy, so I actually recruited him to be in the band because we were looking for a keyboardist, and I, as soon as I knew that he was a classically trained pianist, I was like, well, do you mind dumbing it down and playing a little bit of rock? My name is Troy Manis. Uh, I'm a lieutenant on Miami-Dade Fire Rescue. 20 years I've been there. I've been with the band for more than 15 years, it's probably been 16-ish years. I worked with Adrian the singer one day, randomly, and I had always played guitar and was in other bands and he said, hey, we need another guitarist. So I came and tried out and then, you know, they let me join. It's been a long, great ride. All of us have changed as as people and families. I, I used to be the single one with nothing, I was never busy, I could always play. And now I have the two kids, and and the wife, and and life's life's busier. But it's been a great thing, an accomplishment that I've done over my life. Playing music is, for people, is an awesome experience. So I'm very happy that I met these guys, and that we
5: do what we do.
8: No, because you guys come in at the same time. He starts. Actually, he can start then.
9: Since we've started, we've probably played 150 cover tunes we've covered
8: so uh so we'll play the killers the weekend bruno mars we'll play A's all are, kinds of yeah he's a, yeah. a little bit of everything yeah.
1: journey yeah
8: not for our family this wouldn't even be possible because we didn't have their support forget about it people come are you guys really firefighters because I guess we don't we don't stink as a band we're not bad right so they're like you guys have a real job on the side you don't do this for a living and so it's it's uh, that's always nice here it's you know it's always uh, gratifying to know that they think that we're that we're good enough to be considered a professional band
0: The pandemic has not been easy for schools, teachers, or students. Trying to keep students safe while engaging them properly in class after a two-year break has proven difficult. And those who train teachers also felt the strains of the pandemic. WLRN's Kate Payne spoke to the new dean of Miami-Dade College's School of Education, who hopes to boost enrollment for teachers during a tough time for them.
10: Carmen Concepcion has been at the helm of the Miami-Dade College School of Education for three months. She attended MDC and spent two decades as a teacher and administrator in the county's public schools and at Florida Virtual School. Now as dean of the School of Education, her primary challenge is boosting enrollment
7: enrollment in the school of education over the past few years across the nation is not where it needs to be and in order to achieve that goal i need to work directly with the faculty and my my team to ensure that we're meeting the needs of the students
10: Concepcion has an office at the Eduardo J Padron campus Carmen Concepcion thank you so much for taking the time certainly for students at MDC many of them are working some are, are supporting their own families while they're trying to go back to school as you're having these conversations with students, what are you hearing as far as what are the barriers or, or what may be holding them back from going into education?
7: I have students in, in the School of Education who are not in internship yet because they need to save enough money so that they can stop working and then go into internship. That That's unacceptable. Uh, here at Padron, when I come during the, to work eight to five, There's not a lot of students, but when I I say late or when I come on Saturday, the campus is full. That means that our students are working. They're supporting themselves and they're supporting families. So we need to find ways to support them so that they can finish their their school. For example, we we signed a historic memorandum of understanding with Miami-Dade County Public Schools.
10: And to sort of spell out that agreement, now typically when student teachers are going out into the classroom learning how to teach. They're not being paid, but that is changing here at MDC with this partnership. What is your, your hope and, and your vision for that program as far as getting more more students as teachers into the classroom?
7: The goal is for them to be hired as full-time teachers and they'll receive a salary just like any new teacher from the school system. When they get to internship, they'll be hired full-time, they'll have a cooperating teacher who's also a certified min mentor that can support them through their journey. So that yes, they're in the classroom by themselves, but they have an, an expert teacher that is holding their hand, which is the same experience that I had. I am the teacher that I am today because I had a group of individuals And when I was a student teacher who held my hand and who helped me become the teacher that that I was able to become.
10: We know there's a lot of political pressure on education right now with certain lawmakers, some activists, parents, scrutinizing curriculum, books, and how teachers address race and and identity in, in the classroom. And for some teachers, they say that's part of what's making them rethink staying in the field. Is that something that MDC is addressing with students as far as how to navigate the political landscape?
7: We have a diversity course that all students in the School of Education take. The focus of the course is more about meeting the needs of all our students, regardless of politics and regardless of. It's about the students. It's about making a difference for each of the students in Miami-Dade County.
10: Is the political landscape something that comes up in your conversations with students or or faculty?
7: In my three months here at Miami-Dade College, that has not been part of the conversation. We are so concerned in making sure that our students are prepared. We are making sure that our students are passing certification exams. We are meeting their needs when they come up.
0: That'll do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Natu Tue. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Our interim managing editor is Katie Munoz. Jessica Bakeman is senior editor for news. Mateo Sanchez is digital editor. The vice president of radio and the show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Mears. Richard Ives answers the phones. I'm Danny Rivero. Thanks for listening. <laughs>
6: WLRN Public Media.